welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. As Kelly said, I'm Troy, the host of the Pastured Pig Podcast. I pray that everyone is having a good December so far, despite a global pandemic and shortage of toilet paper again and all of those fun things. Excited to have with me another great interview. I just, you know, it's it's one of those things. I, I just haven't found a bad one yet. Now, you guys may think some are better than others, um, but I haven't had one where I'm just like, okay, there's no way in the world I can play this. This this person is an absolute bore. Uh, but I haven't run into that at all. It's been great. You guys have been very gracious to come on and talk and share your experiences, share the ups, share the downs, share the things you've learned, share the things you haven't learned yet. <laughs> That's my list, the things I've yet to learn. Uh, so I really appreciate everybody coming on. Today I have with me on the interview a fellow West Virginian, which is exciting to talk to West Virginians. I think you can pick up in our conversation that uh, uh, that we kind of hit it off well. Uh, but just talking to Owen, I, I really thought hit it off well, thought we uh, had a great conversation. It's just neat to talk to other West Virginians. I don't know why that's the case. It may be there's just so few of us. But uh, instead of uh, talking about it more, I'll just dive right in. You guys can listen for yourself and see how the conversation went. And we'll do some updates on the backside. Today, I have with me a fellow West Virginian, although I have to say where he is in West Virginia is about as far away as you can get and still be in West Virginia for me. <laughs> but uh, huh? today, I have Owen McAteer from Capon Bridge, West Virginia. So welcome, Owen. Thank you for having me. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful. So a fellow West Virginian. I don't get too many. I think I've only had one other West Virginian on him. Come to think of it. I may be... Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple on my list, but I haven't been able to get them yet. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's neat to talk to a fellow West Virginian. So uh, well, I'm honored, then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So are are you a are you a born and raised West Virginian? Or are you a transplant? Uh, born and reared. All right, very good. I like it. Reared. Yep, said it correctly too. So um, yeah, so yeah, that's the thing. You, you don't find you don't find too many West Virginia transplants. Uh, usually, it's it's people are. F- from West Virginia, and you find them elsewhere. There's not too many people coming. I was going to say we usually we usually export ours. We don't we don't necessarily import a whole lot. Exactly, exactly. So so what's interesting? We um, so as I mentioned in the intro, there Owen's farm is in the eastern panel. If anybody has a little geography, West Virginia geography lesson here, it's an opportunity to talk about our lovely state. But the geography, West Virginia has two panhandles: one in the east, one in the north. And where Owen is located is actually further east in West Virginia than most of the contiguous land in Virginia. Yeah, so wrap your brain around that one. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, that's we call that the other West Virginia because that's um, that looks that's to- right. totally different than what it's like over here. Do you, do you get over to Western West Virginia much? You ever been to the Charleston area much? We we try to stay away from the Western West Virginia too much, but no, we we like to go down into uh, we like to go to Kanawha and. and uh, and uh, over to Wheeling, we, my people originally from uh, Fairmont, yeah, uh, and just just south of Morgantown, uh, southwest of Morgantown. All right. So that's we, we frequent that area 
to some degree. We don't head head south too often, but we do like it down there. Yeah, yeah. River and then things like that. Yeah, exactly. A beautiful part. It, I think I can drive to D.C. faster than I can drive to where you are, but uh, it's funny how that and works. You might be right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, okay, enough of Western geography. Let's dive in and talk about uh, pastured pigs. So give me a 40,000-foot elevation uh, view of your setup, uh, your farm name, what you're working on, and, and what kind of uh, breed you're dealing with. Well, I actually, we, I originally grew up in Shepherdstown, uh, which is even further on the panhandle. Like, we're at the very end of the panhandle, um, just in, off of, uh, outside of Charlestown and uh, Martinsburg, to give you kind of reference. And the, uh, we had a 40-acre farm there growing up. Uh, we raised hogs when we were kids uh, in 4-H. And then I kind of got out of it, you know, went to college and, and went to WVU and, uh, and then sort of have in the last five to seven years gotten back into it. Um, and now our farm in Cape and Bridge, we just we run McAteer Farms, um, and we have uh, <clears throat> the best way I can describe it is it's almost like the head of a hatchet. So it basically it's got a long edge that butts up against about 150 acres worth of wood. Now that's not ours, um, but it does have a lot of oak trees that our pigs love to go in and forage for. Mm. And then kind of comes down and into uh, into sort of where the where it would meet the handle from there. Yeah. Um, so if that's kind of a oversimplification of the property line, but yeah, we have uh, we have ten acres in Cape and Bridge, and, uh, and we still run pigs on the forty acres in Shepherdstown um, from time to time. Oh, okay. We're, it's it more sort of the diversity of their food source in a lot of ways. Um, Minus, you know, having to have a one-hour drive for the pigs kind of sucks for them. But you know, if they, you know, then they get out and they've got 40 acres and black walnuts and acorns and all kinds of stuff to eat. So they they forgive me. Interesting. So I, yeah, I want to I want to stick a pin in that because I want to I want to come back and talk about that that in detail here. But uh, as far as your setup goes, so uh, the the 10-acre farm is what you consider your home base. That's where you reside, and that's that's kind of the zone one for you. Okay. So, um, what, uh, what breeds are you raising? Do you focus on a specific one? Uh, and when I first started getting back into it, I, I started with, I kind of got enamored with the Mangalitsa, um, the curly pig, mm -hmm. uh, and sort of this, the concept of a, of a higher end animal and the sort of raising heritage hogs and raising kind of a, um, uh, a product that almost sold itself, you know what I mean? Right. So the goal was to kind of that, or the goal was to have something to the, along those lines. Now, since then, uh, we've definitely included sort of a, a, a much greater genetic variety. So we started with three Mangalitsas. Uh, they're blonde. They're so there's uh, three different types of Mangalitsa. There's the blonde, the swallow belly, or the black and a red one. Now, we've got, we started with the blondes, three blondes, and then um, have since added a swallowbelly gilt and a red boar uh, since then. 
And I, I, this is where I've kind of gotten into messing with genetics a little bit more, um, feeling more comfortable with my setup and my and my uh, my process. And so I'm now kind of experimenting with the genetics. So we also have uh, Berkshire, we have uh, Tamworth, uh, Mulefoot, and um, Osabaugh Island. Okay, yeah. Uh, and we do have two Cooney Coonies, but that's that's almost like a side gig. Yeah. <laughs> a side project. All right. So, so you're looking at you said messing with genetics. There. Are you looking at at crossing some of those? Or are you trying to keep those uh, lines clean? What What are you doing there? We we crossed we crossed a we crossed a, a mule foot and a mangalitsa the red uh, red mule or red mangalitsa and the mule foot. Um, uh, I'm I'm working on branding, so I've dubbed it the mulitsa. Um, <laughs> right. My uh, my lovely lady has rolled her eyes at me every time I do it, but you know, right, exactly. I, you got You got to get it out there somehow. So, <laughs> but um, I like that. Uh, yeah, the the the, and then we also did the Berkshire, uh, Berkshire uh, Mangalitsa. Um, both so, seem, I, I I like sort of the confirmations of each one. Um, the Berkshire definitely has a, a, a more stout frame, um, much bigger hams, much bigger kind of tenderloin uh, than a Mangalitsa would, um, and the mule foot actually kept its sort of very slender ham on the back, on the hind legs, which, I we're, again, like we're just kind of messing around with what what do these crosses kind of end up looking like. What Not saying you're going to try to get the perfect pig, but, you know, genetics is a, it's a, a Pandora's box of things that you can get into. All right. So are so you keeping this at the F1 level? So you're just taking that first generation to, to see what you're getting? Or are you going to go... Go deeper with those generations and, and, and keep crossing. We'll probably try to go deeper with some generations, depending on what we see grow out. Yeah, uh, okay. we're we're de- we're definitely interested in um, <clears throat> in seeing if we can get certain attributes of certain you know animals, um, and almost to the point. I mean, it's just like um, basically cross pollinating plants uh, in a lot of ways where you're. You're trying to find disease resistance, cold hardy, depending on your location, and you know. And we are, oh heck, I looked it up, and I think, you know, in a certain, we're definitely in a much higher elevation um, than sort of our surrounding area. Um, we, I travel to Winchester to go to work, and you know, I drop my elevation by, you know, whatever, you know. 800,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So then, um, you know, in that elevation, we've, you kind of, you, you just sort of recognize your, your territory and your terrain. And then you, I, I, my goal is to kind of like build an animal that just thrives on that. Right. Essentially. Right. Or like, you know, it, the, the mule foot or the mangalitsa is exceptional in regards to, you know, hardiness. It's got a coat that basically it, it sheds in the summer, you know, and is thick in the winter. In you know, sub, you know, sub-zero temps, it's still outside. I mean, we have shelters for it, but it still sleeps outside. 
I mean, we can't make it go in, so. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's good to, to see how it responds to your environment there. So you talked about your, your branding name is the uh, Mulitza there on the first one. What, what's the second one? Is that a uh, Berkelitza? Uh, it's, it's the Mangashire. Mangashire, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good call. All right, I like it. Okay, well, well, let's talk a little bit about this um, this uh, two farm setup. So, if your ten acres there in Capon is is the uh, uh, is the home base, and you've got 40, right. 40 over in Shepherdstown, what's your what's your mode of operation there? Is when you move them, and are you moving specific pigs at certain times, or a litter stays here, litter stays there? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we the 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 always. Um, the, the goal is to kind of follow research that's already been done. Somebody's already worked for you, so you might as well just kind of like, you know, at least start there. Use that as a start. Um, the or the thing that we've we read was that basically you can feed nuts and acorns and you know and walnuts and whatever you know, all you want, but really they start to absorb that flavor within the last few months before their process. Yeah. So, you know, the goal would be to just sort of um, processing at certain points um, with them foraging for those particular nuts and seeds and stuff like that. The other side of that is, you know, how much corn are you feeding up until that point or something, you know, kind of, again, you're, you're looking at different research. But even if you, even as you look at research, you still have to go with kind of your own, what you what you see and what you notice when you get your, you know, your product back from the uh, processor. So right now we kind of the you know black walnuts fall, they fell like last month. Um, so right now anybody that's going to the processor, we have a processing date in January. Which was that's a whole other story because a whole you know <laughs> right. that 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 whole you know they they exploded as far as that business model, but um, uh, so we're right now we're moving you know the hogs that will be going probably onto much bigger pasture, a lot of walnuts, a lot of forage, um, still feeding you know our non-GMO grains. Um, and um, getting you know whatever they kind of whatever they want really. Yeah, yeah, good deal. So it's so if I'm understanding you correctly, you're using the 40 acres and is is basically your finished setup depending on the time of year. In a lot of ways, yeah. Um, like I said, where I I'm still I'm <clears throat> at this at this point I'm I'm I uh, I like my process and I like how I've move the animals, the rotational grazing, everything like that. Now I'm kind of saying I want to play with, all right, we finished this group on acorns. We finished this group on black walnuts. What's the difference? Do we have the same pigs, you know, same genetic breed on acorns and the same ones on black walnuts? And what's the difference? What's the taste profile, you know, that you're kind of working with? Um, so that's, that's usually where I'm. Uh, I, I I find the most I find it the most interesting I guess. Yeah, yeah, that that resonates with me too. I'm a I'm a data geek by by trade, but um so so let's yeah. unpack that a little bit. So you're looking at uh, you're trying to have your control there of the same breed stock 
uh, one finishing on a specific type of protein, another finishing on another. So you're looking at taste profile. What what other what other data points are you capturing and, and looking at other than taste, or is it just all flavor based? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it should be flavor. Like mm-hmm. you're in, real, in a lot of re- in a lot of ways. Now again, you you know we still eat with our eyes first, and then you know then the nose and sort of things like that. Um, so you still want you still want a, a good-looking chop or a good-looking tenderloin. Um, so animal confirmation is big um, with uh, with what you choose. Like I was talking, telling, telling, saying about the Berkshires, the Berkshire added um, a very boxy, very stout-looking, you know, genetic profile to the Mangalitsas that. The mother of the Mangalitsa, the, the mother was a Mangalitsa that had very long back, not real big tenderloins, um, and and the Mangalitsa have much bigger shoulders than they do hips. So they have a very narrow hip, and then sort of the shoulders, and then they kind of spread, like they, they, they're they very pear-shaped almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, these, the ones that we have now, have a, a a bigger uniform like evenness to it, um, so that's that's something we're kind of like, well, all right, that that could mean good things or bad things, sort of, you know, you know, it's a sort of adiphosphor, or it's a, it, it it can either be either good or bad, basically. Right. Gotcha. So you're saying your F ones they filled out a little bit more in the rear because of the Berkshire genetics coming in, right? Gotcha. Yeah, okay. exactly. Good deal. So, so that raises another question. I'm hopping all over the place here, but you're, you're what you're saying you're is interesting. You, yeah. So the did you just go? So you had a female. So your 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 dam was a, a, a Mangalitsa, and your sire was a uh, Berkshire. Did you did you have any issues? Was she a gilt? Did you have any issues with birthing because of the bigger frames? Did you any issues there? We not that we noticed. We had so we bred two to the Berkshire. Um, and we had him, we had one that we kind of knew she wasn't a great mother to begin with. Mm. He had, we had since had her with, uh, a, another Mangalitsa boar, the, the blonde Mangalitsa boar, and she had a, a several, like, just stillbirths. Um, she had more stillbirths than we were kind of hoping for, and, and since, and I, this was, and uh, she was still around, purely sentimental. Like it's, it's, she really is. Like she's been the first one. She was my girl. I really shouldn't, but I did. And and uh, so she got sort of a second shot at this. Um, and then, so we did it. We we birthed her with the uh, um, with the Berkshire, or we bred her with the Berkshire. Still about the same litter size. A couple, like not as many stillbirths, which I guess I've, is, you know, but she's gonna go to the processor yeah. come this January. So it's I can't. Uh, uh, it it was just too much for for me to do on on that one. That sort of that was her second strike and she's out kind of thing. But as far as the guilt that we bred, we had a really really good success. A success six, you know. Six on the first go on her first go, everyone's healthy. She's been a great mom, so um, we didn't notice anything in terms of the birthing process that 
you know, she was she had problems in any way. So uh, very optimistic about that. Okay. So and and apologize if you've said this already. I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. Do you do you currently maintain a breeding pair for for manga and then a breeding pair for Berkshire so you can replenish those gilts uh, and boards you need, or are you are you having to go out and acquire those if you're going to go that direction? We kind of we at right at this point we're kind of we're 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 looking elsewhere to bring other stuff back in. Yeah. Um, we're not uh, genetic lines. I'm I'm all about you know keeping adding new genetics to it, adding new you know just kind of like uh, just uh, new stock kind of coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, just for the sake of you know. I don't like the idea too much of crossbreeding at this point, or any, or even the potential of crossbreeding, or you know, line breeding in, in this in this instance. Now down the road, yeah, I would probably say once we kind of hone in and feel like this is a good pair that we need to kind of keep this have like stockpile, I guess. Or, um, but having the same litters off of these, then that, yes, I would definitely say we'll probably have a pair down the road. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess that kind of depends on how, like you say, all this testing plays out and you see that you may be really onto something here. So you, you keep those uh, two sides clean and then yeah. cross when yeah. you need to. Excellent. So, uh, so again, my goodness, I am all over the place. So going back to your testing process. So when you're, when you're doing this quality control, kind of looking at flavor and the profile texture, those type of things, is that based on, on your opinion uh, or, or do you have a customer base that you say, okay, guys, here, here we go. I want you to try this out and tell me what you like best. How, how deep are you going down that rabbit hole? Um, probably deeper than I should, (laughs) you know, uh, like honestly, like you get, you know, you can have, you know, 1,500 opinions, different opinions, right. and, you know, and get no, and you get no answers and back out of that. So really, I, like, I sort of know what I like in a piece of pork. Um, you know, I want marbling. I want a good fat cap. I want, uh, you know, good texture on the actual meat. And then really, I look at, I look at the pork chop. Now, that being said, you know, our the mangalitsa bacon was excellent, but you know you don't have a lot of bacon to it. Right. Yeah. I guess it yields lower. Yeah. It's very it's it's very fatty. Um, but then flip side is we make some exceptional lard and you know exceptional cracklings. Uh, you know from from that. So then you kind of you're. You can get a lot of opinions and get a lot, and but get no answers, kind of thing. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, I definitely go down, and I want a lot. I want a lot of information. But I, what I try to do is, I try to go to, um, I try to go to less consumers and more towards chefs. Ah. Okay. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're looking, you're looking at your, your market there. And that was going to be my next question. Are you primarily selling, primarily selling cuts to end users? Are you doing, uh, holes and halves or are you selling to a, uh, to a restaurant market? Honestly, we're kind of getting a little bit of everything. And I, I probably shouldn't concentrate on one thing. Marketing is not my strong suit. Let me go ahead and say it. (laughs) I, I, I love the hell out of farming, but uh, marketing is, is still a foreign, it's 
it's a foreign concept to me. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's unfortunately sort of where you make your bread. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, uh, but right now, like, I, we try to do, um, we definitely do cuts. There's a couple retail shops that, uh, that we get or that we have um, locally that will pick up our cuts. Uh, we've definitely sold to a couple chefs and sort of restaurants. Um, that's a little bit, you don't, I don't like relying on them as far as they're, you know, they want, you know, 20 pork chops, you know, or, you know, 30 pork chops for their meal. And then the rest of the hog, you kind of have to like deal with somewhere else. Um, yeah. and then, so we, and, and I, but you know, ultimately, I think I would love to sell just half and whole, mm-hmm. more so than anything. I think it would just be easiest, and that's and I and and that allows the the consumer to actually try different parts of the hog that they may not normally take, or you know, this this animal is is a, a incredible animal that you can basically have you have amazing cuts of meat off of everything off of just about you can use the whole animal for everything so it's i try to encourage people to to really to branch out from what they what they actually i guess what their norms are right. in terms of like pork chops bacon ham that's not it yeah. you know well you know and, and you raise a good point and, and this is you know, by no means an, an indictment against your operation because it sounds like you're you're recognizing that you've got to figure out um, where it goes, and this is this is always the big challenge. Is okay, all the eggs in in one basket. So if you said, okay, I'm going to focus specifically on restaurants, we're really going to cater to the high end chef market, and then COVID hits, and yeah, you know, we hear people that have run into that. And it's like overnight, their entire customer base just vaporized. Whereas if you go, okay, well, we're going to do individual cuts, then like you said, we got to figure out how to how to produce and get the 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 less desirable cuts sold. And then with holes and halves, then then you got to try to have this eclectic supply that says, okay, yeah, here's a great pork chop, but here's also great bacon. And then, yeah, dealing with the heritage with the lard, it's like, okay, do our customers even understand uh, what you can do with lard, the beauty of that? Because if I'm selling them a lard pig on hanging weight and they realize, wow, you know, I paid all this money on hanging weight, but there's a huge bunch of lard that I don't know anything to do with. So, so it really is, you, know, you find yourself in this conundrum, and I, I think all of us as producers can end up talking ourselves in circles, but I appreciate the fact that you're starting to look at that data and start it, starting to write it down and, and identify to see, okay, which direction really do I need to go with my product? Exactly, yep. And that's uh, honestly, that's always kind of like, uh, I, I still, I've, <laughs> and, uh, again, Candace is, is probably, you know, hates hearing this, but like I'm still in like almost a research phase. Sure. Um, yeah. in, in this pro- and and I mean I really don't feel like I'll ever get out of the research no. phase if if you know if I'm doing this right kind of thing. So so I really I, I I would love to have sort of almost a variety of animal that you know yes this animal goes to a a chef or these you know the chef would like this one better just because. Mm-hmm. It has more desirable cuts, bigger of it, you know, or you know, it has a certain flavor profile that he really likes. And then this animal is better for, you know, your consumer, your the half and whole guy. And it's not, you know, completely like just a fatty lard pig that they're going to have, you know, four gallons of lard and, and they don't know what to do with, you know. Right. So, exactly. I, 
Yeah, so it'd be cool to like kind of to mess around with and and almost have a particular product for a particular consumer base, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and and that's the thing when you pencil that out on paper, and I and, and I'm with you. I'm I'm starting year seven, and I don't think I have a single element of my operation nailed down where I say, okay, this is now static. I've I've gotten all this figured out. This is exactly how I'm going to do X Y Z. Maybe transporting exactly. my animals from from the to, from here to the processor is about the only thing I've gotten nailed down. But uh, so yeah, so it's it's one of those things where you're. You're constantly exploring that, but when you pencil that on paper, yeah, it starts to make sense. And then the, I think the challenge for all of us to say, oh, "Wow, okay, if I have you know, category one, two, and three, it diversifies my market. It keeps me protected. I'm insulated from uh, really crazy market fluctuations that we see." But then it becomes the logistics and the operation. It's like, okay, how do I keep these three different areas maintained and and separated and processing time? So it it adds more work when it comes time to actually be out in the field doing stuff but it's, exactly. it's yeah so it's, it's really neat to sit down and measure all that and okay weigh the cost to say well i want to do this but do i have the manpower the time and the infrastructure to be able to implement it yeah no you're 100 percent because then you know too like when you came up and you said you know when COVID hits like all of a sudden like we there was just this mad dash of like you know, uh, what do you guys have? We'll buy it, you know, and they, we sold out of all of our cuts almost, you know, within a month. Right. Yeah. And, and then, and then sort of like, okay, well, you know, there are more people still asking for all, you know, for more meat. So then I, I made the decision to tap into breeding stock and I, you know, kind of, I don't regret it, but I, you know, I kind of do. And so it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, I'll get into this. I'll, I'll, I'll process this girl. Um, one, because that the the guy that I take my, my hogs to to process, I mean, he was like, if you're going to do it, you got to get on the books now. Because yeah. he, he has been filling up like crazy. And I we've had to now schedule out, you know, January of 2022, you know, and then, you know, April of 2022 and almost all of 2023 kind of that's thing. Crazy. So, which, you know, good for him. That's, that's amazing business, but... Oh, it is. It is, but it's so frustrating as a producer, and and, and, and I agree. Here we are, right. where we are here, we're here in central, southern West Virginia. It was, you know, I am I'm booking dates to have pigs processed that haven't even been born yet, and right. it, it becomes frustrating because you're like, okay, this this is something I usually didn't worry about until after weaning, and I knew how many you know live animals were going to be staying on the farm here versus. Uh, you're trying to forecast exactly. before, you know, I've got, you know, if I have two, two pregnant sows, it's like, okay, I have, I have no idea. So, so, and I think it's tough on the processors as well, because everybody's going to take that worst case scenario. So I'm calling the processor and say, Hey, book me for 20 on this date, right? Because I've got yeah. two pigs are going to fare. Now I'm probably bringing them nine. So at some point yeah. it's one of those deals where it's like, okay, uh, you know, that date I scheduled for 20, it's actually going to be nine. And you know, maybe they're relieved. Maybe you're like, Oh crap. Yeah. There goes some. Yeah, that's a half. Yeah, that's less than half of what we expected. So, um, I, all of this is going to flush itself out at some point, whether producers uh, add more capability or things go back to the way they were. I don't know which is. I don't know which is best or worst in that situation. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's kind of funny. You say that because when you start to like, you know, does this alter our food system? Does this kind of like have this kind of. The, Will we kind of just sort of say, okay, let's go back to where we were, or is it kind of the kick in the butt that says, okay, we need to, 
you know, we our food food chain is is definitely needs some tweaking, and that we definitely need to kind of adjust to that. Yeah. But you know, for for small scale people like us, it's kind of like yeah, we need we need that kind of we hope for that kick in the butt. Hey, we need to look for other avenues for our for our processing and small farms are you know a good way to go. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and, yeah, and and again, and from a purely selfish perspective on my part, what what right. I would like to see, I, I agree. I think this has been a wake up call for our food, sir, our food process, our national food chain to say this doesn't work. We got to fix this. Uh, we're we're dealing with the the birth pains of something new coming out of it, and hopefully, if we can, we can stay out of our own way, then maybe there's some more relaxed regulation, or maybe more processors come online, or they add additional capacity. And this centralized food processing market gets very, very diversified. I would love to see, you know, five new processors within two hours of me, because I right now I really have one or two to choose from. So, you know, from a selfish perspective, like, man, yeah, let's let's get more processors. Let's let's diversify this. But then we also see when you do that, there's obviously more. Uh, there's more capacity, so there could be more pig farmers coming online. So if I get five new processors, I could have you know ten new farms in my area that we're trying to go after the same market share. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, I guess it it, it will ultimately kind of it has to almost see kind of see what happens, sort of thing, and and play itself out. But to be honest, I'd rather take a chance at like five new farmers, five new pig farmers coming in, right? Versus you know going back to the sort of queso method of you know, here's a here's a, a one acre lot housing 400, 500 pigs at a time, kind of thing. Right. Yeah, and and, and I I would love to see some some regulation get get moved. Simply, um, mm-hmm. it, it, maybe even the, for the sake of national security to some degree. But I always I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. So yeah, in West Virginia, of course, we have a lot of bordering states. We have what five states around us, uh, just because of the right. odd shape of our state. So within an hour, I can drive to just across the river in Ohio, and there's a processor that I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it a second thought to go on and eat anything off the floor in their place. It's just absolutely spotless. <laughs> Gorgeous processor. But they're only Ohio State inspected. So the fact that they're ah, okay. 10, yeah, 10 minutes across the state line, I legally can't go over there and have any of my stuff processed and brought back over. Now... I know what that processor looks like for a reason, and I'll just leave it at that. But it's one of those things. It's like this is so frustrating for a a producer to have something as stupid as a river uh, separate us and say, this is why you can't, this is the only reason why you can't move it across. It's like, well, the people in Ohio can eat this meat and be fine, but if I bring it across the river for some reason, it's unsuitable. It's really bizarre. Yeah, there's definitely... We'll just—I would say—leave it at the fact that there needs to be some sort of change. There yeah. needs to be some alteration. Anyway, I didn't mean to get on my soapbox, and and, and obviously. No, 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 no. I'm, I, I am, I'm, no, I'm 100 percent behind you, 100 percent. Cool. All right. So, so getting back to uh, man, I, I really like, I really like what I'm hearing from you, and I love the, I love the data aspect of it. It's, it's to me, it's, it's something I, I, I relate to. So, uh, so your inputs, the other input that we haven't talked about, you, you've mentioned a little bit, is your feed. So. Uh, the forage, of course, that they're getting. But what are you doing? Are you are you going with a standard ration? I, I, I think I heard you say non-GMO. There's are you are you playing around with your rations to see how that works as well? We definitely do. Um, again, like I uh, like I said, like science is my is my base is my foundation, and then I, you know you try to build on whatever you can off of that. Um, so 
You know, I love reading different articles, you know, talking about uh, you know, trying to limit the amount of, especially with a lard pig or a fatty pig, you're trying to limit the amount of beta carotene that they get uh, because of, you know, you don't want that sort of yellow hint to the, to the fat that the sort of the, a fat-soluble um, uh, uh, mineral or vitamin would ultimately kind of like get absorbed there. Um, so we, we try to say, okay, anything that does have that, I want to see. I mean, now I haven't tested against it. I should, I should make that caveat. Is I have never t- tested against the data. I guess is what I'm saying. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know, they're saying that beta carotene has that yellowing. Uh, you know, to my own fault, I've sort of taken that as the gold standard. So I limit the amount of corn that they get. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, what should I probably just almost feed one hog solely corn and see if that actually holds true? Maybe. But you know, I'm again like I. People smarter than me have done a lot more research on it than I'm going to ever do in my lifetime. Exactly. So I'll listen for you know for when I can um, and just play around with it, you know, on my own scale. Yeah. So the so then you kind of so we have the we try to say okay what is because corn's a, you know it's cheap it's a great filler you know in, in a lot of ways what's the limit that we can probably do that to in terms of the ratio of feed. You know, you have 40% barley, 40% wheat, uh, and 11% corn. Well, you got to come up with, you know, another 9% of something else. So mm-hmm. we've added sunflower sometimes, depending on the year. We try to get them to eat seasonally a little bit. Um, and then, you know, that's and that's just the feed mix. That doesn't include what they get as far as their daily intake and what that is in relation to their, you know, overall, you know, food for the day because they'll still have pasture. They'll still have forage. Um, we also have, uh, a, we give them a, we get a brewer's grain from mm-hmm. uh, a local, uh, a local brewery. Yeah. Uh, Try to limit that, um, just because it's now it's again it's more like a filler. It's more like rice at this point. Um, it's definitely high in protein. Definitely, you know, got carbohydrate to it. Not, you know, a ton of nutritional value. But we also we can also take that supplement um, the that with like minerals and and different stuff like that uh, that we kind of we get from. You know, just a just a big bag of minerals. You mix it with brewer's grain, and it it elevates the health benefits a little bit. I'm not saying a lot, but again, we try to we try to find different outlets for the uh, you know for the animals to to have a uh, new food sources as much as it, as much as they possibly can. Yeah. So then, you know, the next step is our pasture, and we try to make sure that our pastures, you know, we seed our pastures with stuff that they like to eat. You know, we found that they don't like alfalfa that much. So we've, you know, we don't usually sow alfalfa into our fields. Or they'll eat some clovers, but not all kinds of clovers. Um, the vetch they love. Uh, the uh, they go through amaranth, 
And then, you know, on top of that, they go through weeds. They, they prefer weeds in a lot more right. like, like scenarios than something that looks like really good as far as a pasture. The thistle, I would have thought they would have just stayed away from completely, but they chew on that like it's, uh, like it's candy. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny to see. And then, of course, you, like you say, with the different breeds, I, you know, this is my uh, first year for Tamworth uh, Large Black uh, uh, Cross, and they love stillgrass. And I have Japanese stillgrass all over the place, which is, which is an issue of its own. But to watch them eat it, I'm like, oh, okay. I think I've just found the way to uh, to mitigate stillgrass all over the place. We're just going to introduce these pigs to these areas, and, and they're doing a great job keeping it in. Now I've got to figure out how to reseed something that can can beat out the stillgrass. But um, yeah, it, it's fantastic to see just what they gravitate toward, because what you think would be logical for a livestock, a certain type of livestock, may not necessarily be. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, honestly, that's what we kind of, um, we, uh, another component to what we kind of like just in terms of our observation when you're going through sort of the soap note of, of you know, hog raising. Um, you know, we know that certain certain hogs uh, do better on pasture, obviously, and um, than others, and reason one other reason I went to a mangalisa was that they do have a tendency to gravitate towards pasture, grasses, stuff like that, uh, initially. Um, and another reason I actually, I myself have also brought in a Tamworth guilt um, for that, for because she does, she and she loves grass, mm-hmm. and she loves pasture. Yeah. Um, the, the Berkshire boar, uh, he actually loves to tear grass or pasture apart. Um, so, you know, and he does a very good job of it. And, and, uh, and so really sort of then you kind of like say, okay, well, well, we can't, you know, keep having him on pasture, creating these, you know, craters, you know, these bomb craters that, Mm -hmm. that he's able to do. Um, however, you know, at the, at sort of at the end of the day, it's kind of a very permaculture principle of like, well, okay, this, if he does a certain thing, Let's make him do a certain thing. What is his job? You know, Salatinesque um, kind of, you know, concept, um, Seth Holder type stuff. So then basically he's now kind of our designated pond digger or like little pond digger or he will go into the garden and till up. Right. That's his, that is his job. So, you know, again, like I said, this is, you know, we know subjectively what he's capable of doing, what his, like, you know, what his, tendencies are and then objectively what we have observed is just him being uh, you know doing what pigs do best and and root um so then you know then that's you just kind of make sure you play with that and make sure that he's he he, he does his thing and and he's happy where he's where he is yeah so, yeah cool yeah well, I've got one more, actually two more questions I want to ask you. I don't want to sure. keep you too long. I'm having a great conversation here, but I, I don't want to blow your whole day here. But um, with where you are in, in, in Capon, what's your topography like? You, you talk about being higher elevation. Do you have a, a decent uh, topography role? Are you, are you flat on top of that ridge? What, what are you dealing with on your 10 acres? It's pretty, it, I, it, so it's a, uh, it's got a good role to it. In, in a lot of ways, and what I mean is that it has, or it's, I mean, again, 10 acres isn't much, but it's, you know, but it's ours, and, and so it's got a nice 
flat roll that kind of dips into a valley, and there's a very, if you kind of go to the, towards like almost, uh, you know, again, geeking out on this kind of stuff, but the P.A. Yeoman concept of water for every farm, it's, it's very, set, it's almost set up perfectly for particular watering holes kind of along the way where it, 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 it would follow a valley and you create swales and, and, and sort of like, you know, just water catchment areas and whatnot. Um, so that's our topography is is pretty is it's still hilly but it's got a it's got a very gentle roll to it on sort of and we are sort of at at the top of a ridge uh, Cooper Mountain we actually go back down if you're heading towards Romney and you go back down and then you have to come back up and then you kind of go back down and it's very, so it's very it's got a lot of rolling hills yeah. around surrounding us um, but. Uh, for us, mostly it's pasture, um, and we sort of secretly, hopefully, the the guy that lives behind us that has 150 acres worth of woods doesn't listen to your podcast. No offense, but you know we've been kind of <laughs> right. throwing our pig throwing our pigs in there every once in a while. Sure, clean up some clean up some acorns. They're just but, vacuuming. Uh, it's all they're doing. Yeah, so that's so, but you know, that's not like it's it's more like hey, flash graze them, get them out of there, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, but it's a lot of pasture. We just moved there uh, last November. Oh, okay. We've only been there a year. Okay. Um, and so it it still needs work, but you know, it's kind of it's it. The vision is there, I guess. I'll sure. say it. I'll say that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I like it. Now that's that's one thing I was wondering. You know, talked to some of the other, uh, guy I interviewed just here recently. He was just outside of Dallas, and he said on his I can't remember how big it was, but it was a substantial tract of land. And he's like, you know, there's zero elevation change. It is flat as a pancake. And of course, you know, having a hundred acres here in in central West Virginia, it's like, okay, I would love to have a spot that I could turn my truck around with a trailer that, that that's, yeah, I've got one place on the front of the property where I can do that. The rest is just your typical West Virginia hillside. Uh, that makes us the best at, you know, going in reverse. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. I, you know, everyone's always impressed when they watch our YouTube channels, how Kelly can back a trailer all the way down the driveway. But, uh, it's just, oh yeah. It's I, I, mean, I, I tell people all the time, I could probably drive better in reverse than I can forward. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that raises a challenge, but I, you know, I, and, and you mentioned some of the permacultural elements of this, and I think that's that's always advantageous for a, a pastured operation. Is just to read the land, watch, you know, observe what it does before you make any of these massive infrastructure changes, because uh, yeah, the land's going to tell you something as far as what to do and what not to do. So, absolutely, cool. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna wrap up with a question I like to ask everyone, Owen. So you're not going to be able to escape that. Um, Absolutely. What is your best experience or favorite part about raising pigs on pasture? <laughs> I, I I can only go back to uh, and this I I I'll not to twist your question. It's not my best <laughs> experience, but it's my most memorable experience. Okay, that'll work. I'll allow that. Uh, okay, okay. I was going to say, <laughs> let me check with you and make sure that's, that's okay. Right. Yep. Got a the, thumbs up from the judges. Uh, I, it's our, when, the first time we farrowed, now normally all growing up we had, you know, basically pigs come in at, you know, 10 weeks or whatever they were, 8 weeks, um, 
we raise them till the fair, the fair after the fair, they're gone. Mm. Uh, that was our experience as far as raising pigs. That was a year in, year out for however long we did it. Um, and, you know, we raised the land race and we raised, you know, the Yorkshire crosses that just grew in six months. Um, so those were our first experiences. Now, the, the, when I finally got back into it, when we finally got a boar and had, you know, our girls bred, um, you don't realize how damn cute these pigs are um, <laughs> when they're born. And so then growing up, you're kind of raising them from what you remember them, you know, when they do their little butt scratch on something and you're just like thinking about that. And now, and then and now it's time to, <laughs> and now it's time to process. And you're like, well, how am I going to do this? I can't even like, you know, how like, there started to become this moral internal conflict in, you know, within me. And I was in this dilemma and this moral, you know, just agitation. And I was feeding, and I kind of, I was in the in with a, with about fifteen of them, and <laughs> and uh, I think they thought that I had more food than I did, um, or they didn't see where I had actually put the food on the trough, which was, and they knocked me down, and yeah. I basically. And, I mean, I don't have to tell you how strong pigs are and how sure. strong pigs' necks are. And they basically held me to the ground. And they weren't, like, biting, but they are kind of taking little nips and uh-huh. little, like, you know, kind of checking and seeing and taking little tears <laughs> of, like, my jacket or That's something right. like that. Just, you know, 15, and I'm, you know, swinging fists, you know, throwing haymakers left and right to just get up out of this, this cavalcade of hogs. And... That moral dilemma kind of went away. I was like, you know what? Turned around. I think you guys would eat me, so I'm good. <laughs> right. And I was able to walk away from that one. I love it. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That was the uh, realization of how quickly you could go down a rung on the food chain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then there's the, so the stories that come back up. You're like, oh, yeah, I did hear about a woman having a heart attack and then her hogs ate her. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. You know, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah, no, no, I can, I can relate to that, and I, I agree that that is the dilemma. I, you know, I, I have a hard time dispatching, even when we process chickens. It's, you know, it's just that time that you, you have respect for the animal yeah. and, and you appreciate it. But I, I have to say, I've got one boar. I've got three boars, and it's, it's uh, too, too many right now. But um, so I've got one boar, and I think he knows his name's on the list because he is. He's just, a, I call him Napoleon because he's the smaller of the three and he's got little man syndrome. So when I step into the pen to, to feed them or do anything, he's trying to knock me over. He likes to uh, stick his nose under the bucket and try to spill it prematurely. So yeah, I'm going to look forward to his date. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's on my list. Well, all right. Well, man, I, I really appreciate that conversation. Good conversation. Appreciate you sharing your yeah. setup with us and, and glad you came on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, well, I'm going to let you go, and I pray you have a great weekend. I think uh, if if you're getting the same weather pattern that that we are, I think you're going to have a great weekend leading into the Thanksgiving week. So make the most of it. It's got to be better than the last couple days, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. All right, man, take care. So I really appreciate Owen coming on, taking the time to speak with me there. Uh, again, as I mentioned, love having a fellow West Virginian on. It, it's funny. So, so Owen lives in the Eastern Panhandle. If you know anything about West Virginia geography, which most of you don't, because most of you don't even know that West Virginia is a state. But <laughs> if you know anything about West Virginia geography, Eastern Panhandle is the part that sticks out over Virginia, Maryland, almost gets you to Washington, D.C. and still be in West Virginia, believe it or not. 
But uh, it's funny because he lives in a place uh, called uh, Capen, Capen Bridge, West Virginia, which um, any good West Virginian knows when you took eighth grade, when, when, we, when I was in eighth grade, it was called junior high. Uh, that shows you how old I am. So eighth grade middle school, you had West Virginia history and the best students throughout the state that, di- that did well in West Virginia history could actually sit for what was called the Golden Horseshoe exam. And if you excelled statewide, you could win the coveted Golden Horseshoe. But I remember one of the things about that area where he lives was the pr- proper pronunciation of his town. Um, it was Capon, Capon, Capen, all this discussion. And then, of course, just just over the ridge, over the mountain from him was Capon. They had an extra syllable there. So it was like Cacapon, Cacapon. Yeah, so it was always this contentious thing in, in junior high as to how you actually pronounce that, and everybody has their own take. But that's the uniqueness of West Virginia. My my uh, marketing company office is located in a town called Hurricane. It's spelled like hurricane, but if you come to West Virginia and you pronounce it hurricane, then we know you're not from around here. But I actually, to get to Hurricane, I have to drive through a little town called Tornado. So, very interesting. Uh, of which we get neither. We get neither tornadoes nor hurricanes. <laughs> hurricanes in West Virginia. The irony there. All right. Well, enough about uh, West Virginia geography. As far as updates at Red Tool House goes, um, not a lot's changed. Uh, the mud is still muddy. Uh, haven't had a good freeze yet. Had a little bit of snow. Uh, things that just get you ready for Christmas. Uh, boars. Are, are doing well. We, we are going to uh, eliminate, I think I mentioned in, you heard in a discussion with Owen there, that Napoleon, his, um, he is about to meet his Waterloo. We are getting our supplies together for that and, and getting prepared. Uh, so we'll detail, we'll de- just detail how that turned out. Obviously, we're not going to detail the actual event. It's audio. So what are you going to be able to pick up on? Uh, our, our pigs, uh, we've, uh, our piglets that we've had this year, uh, six of them have, have left the farm and are doing whatever they're doing at other farms. That leaves eight behind that we're going to finish out and we'll be processing this April. So we'll do updates as well. How's those turned out? Well, as always, if you would like to be on the podcast or you have, uh, you know somebody who else should be on the podcast, by all means, go to redtoolhouse.com, click on the Pastured Pig Podcast link. There's a very simple little form you can fill out there that comes to me, gives me all your contact info, details, and I will reach back out to you to schedule something if I have not reached out to you and you filled out that form in the last week or so, uh, please don't think I'm uh, uh, I'm alienating you or staying away from you. It, it just means that with all the forms that came through, they kind of come through in waves that I may have missed one. So by all means, please resubmit and we'll get you listed on there and get you scheduled. Also, if you have a specific topic you'd like us to get into, we get uh casual conversation from time to time about being topic specific and would like to do that and be able to do the research in advance or find the the right person to talk to to help us with a topic so by all means submit topics as well well i pray everyone has a great week and stay safe and merry christmas take care we hope you have enjoyed this episode of the pastured pig podcast to learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes visit redtoolhouse.com.